There is one trait that links many of the world's elite performers. Many Olympic winners, world record holders and Champions League football players share it. In today's show, you'll learn what that trait is with my guest, best-selling author Bruce Daisley. But first, here's a podcast I'd recommend. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Do you remember the 10,000 hour rule? It's a rule popularized by Malcolm Gladwell in his book Outliers. Here's Gladwell explaining the rule on CNN. And you talk about the, the 10,000 hour rule, that, that, that it's not just a matter of, well, this person's a genius, this person has an amazing ability. It, it is actual practice and hard work. You know, so a bunch, a group of really brilliant psychologists in the, in the field of expertise research have sat down and tried to figure out how long do you have to work at something before you become really good, right? And the answer seems to be, it's an extraordinarily consistent answer in an incredible number of fields, and that is you need to have practiced to have apprenticed for 10,000 hours before you get good. So every great classical composer, without exception, composes for at least 10 years before they write their masterwork. Mozart, 10. Mozart is, is composing at 11, but he's composing garbage at 11. I mean, he doesn't produce something great until he's 22 or 23. Mm. Concerto number nine, I think, 271. Um, if I asked you how long did it take you when you were doing this job before you felt comfortable and good at what you were yeah, doing? Ten years at least. Ten years, yeah. yeah. Uh, same with me. When I, I mean, it's an incredibly consistent finding, and it, it's really important because it says that we are far too impatient. Pretty interesting, right? That 10,000 hours is what it takes to become elite level. The problem is, it's garbage. Turns out that in sports, at least, the 10,000-hour rule doesn't stack up. Researchers Reese and Hardy analysed the lifetime training schedule of hundreds of elite athletes and found that many elite athletes had only practised for half that time, just 5,000 hours. There's one extreme example, Donald Thomas, a high jumper from Bahamas. He took up high jump in January 2006. Two months later, in March, he finished fourth in the Commonwealth Games. His performance drew attention because he was wearing the wrong shoes, failed to achieve the right run-up, and then landed pretty clumsily. But he finished fourth. The following year, he won gold at the World Championships in Okasaka, Japan, and he'd reached the top of the sport within 16 months of first competing in it, well before he had racked up 10,000 hours. It's one example, but Reese and Hardy's research is foolproof. Elite athletes don't need 10,000 hours to get to the top. So what do they need? That's what I'm chatting about today with the fantastic Bruce Daisley. Bruce is a best-selling author with his book Joy of Work. He is regarded as one of the world's most respective thought leaders on the subject of workplace culture and the future of work. He spent 12 years running Twitter in Europe and previously YouTube in the UK. And he's genuinely just an all-round top guy. In his latest book Fortitude, he unpacks resilience and how important resilience is, and where to find it. The book is 
genuinely brilliant. But before we dive into all of that, I wanted to know if 10,000 hours doesn't make someone the best, what does? What separates super elite athletes from elite athletes? Here's what Bruce had to say. This is something that really lived in my head the moment I saw this piece of research. And to to a large extent, it catalyzed the whole thinking about the book. You know, I I found this piece of research that was uh, was given a bit of coverage at the time, but not a lot, which was um, commissioned by UK Sport. And UK Sport, when they were gifted the opportunity to get more money. So, you know, the a couple of Olympics before London 2012, I think the UK didn't do especially well. Team GB didn't do especially well. And so they put more money into elite performance. But they were really clear in their mind, we need to turn this into medals. And so they commissioned this piece of research from some social scientists, some psychologists, and one of them who'd been the creator of the first sports science course, another one... Um, a guy down in Bournemouth, and they commissioned this work to try and understand what was it that characterised the people who went to the Olympics and came back with a gold medal, or went to multiple Olympics and came back with gold medals, and those who maybe seemed as promising but were stuck in the, the perennial bronze medal position or not meddling and you know the research has a number of things to it it says that you know if you were going to characterize them the the super elites are more selfish they're more obsessive they're more uh focused but that to some extent is a symptom of the other thing that they identified they they identified that of these 16 super elite athletes these gold medal winners and they say in the research these are household names you know these are retired athletes they, they say you know these names so that's an intriguing prospect and they say all 16 of these uh in their childhood years had experienced a significant moment of childhood trauma a significant moment of adversity and in contrast the bronze medal winners um didn't didn't experience that one in four of them had anything close to it so really interesting now you start then reading through the the original report is about 130 pages and it's like it includes biographical details or it's all anonymized but includes you know really textual stuff about the way they trained the way they interact with other people and they seem to have this single-minded obsession in fact you know one of the authors of the report a guy called tim reese he says um he says you know they're not necessarily the nicest people people to be around because it's like it's not friends and sport it's not family and sport it's sport and sport and sport and sport it's win at all cost you know one person says whatever it takes whatever it takes whatever it takes they've got sort of these self-hypnotic mantras and so I was just so captivated with this firstly the idea that somehow this undoing this shattering of someone's childhood identity can be so catalyzing but secondly you know the, the more important question why what happens and you know then you start delving into the biographies of people that we do know so while the great british medalist report was anonymized you know we can look at people we do know tom daly his father had cancer throughout his early career and then passed away when he was about 14 15 uh, andy murray was the victim of the one of the uk's i think the uk's only school shooting mass shooting and uh, and hid in the, the school bathroom and, and actually Andy Murray gives a really interesting testimony he's, he's never talked about it for fear of adding to the uh, the infamy of the, the person involved but um, 
Andy Murray said, you know, actually, he's got something inside of him that, like, is restless, like, he's, he's insatiable and comes from that period where he just feels like he needs to carry on and carry on and carry on. You know, Kelly Holmes talks about sport became her identity when she was put into a care home. Um, she suffered parental abandonment. And, you know, so like all of these people in their biographies, there's actually clues to this dismantling. The, uh, the story of Mo Farah in the last few weeks has been adjacent to this. Mo Farah, actually, the really interesting thing, I found myself, Mo Farah is the most accomplished British track and field athlete, the double-double, two golds from two successive Olympics. And so I found myself looking into his biography, thinking, what is there that drove him on? And, you know, you, you look at his biography and you think, yeah, there's, there's nothing in this. Mm, interesting. Okay, I'll look at someone else. Now you hear, okay, this is a victim of childhood slavery. He was modern slavery. He was effectively <coughs> he was effectively abandoned by his mother into modern slavery, and and then found himself from from preteen age working as a domestic help of a family. Like right now, I get it. Now I get it because what you find in those situations is that what trauma does is it dismantles our sense of self. And in a really, really small number of people, um, these people who've also got an elite level of capability in something else, they're able to focus their attention in it. Um, and, you know, actually, that's, you know, it's, it's literal survivor's bias. We sort of, we think, oh, okay, one of these things is uh, is really helpful for the other. But actually, that can distract us from the fact that most of the evidence is that trauma is really injurious for our well-being but you know in these rare freak instances it acts as a catalyst for these people now i imagine there are some alarm bells ringing in your ears you're thinking hold on surely this can't be true i can think of loads of examples of successful sports people who haven't experienced trauma and sure there will be examples of that but there's lots of evidence to back up bruce's point To reiterate, Tim Reese's study looked at 16 super elite athletes and found that every single one reported a negative critical life experience in their formative years. Only four out of the 16 elite athletes, the ones that never got gold, so elite athletes compared to the super elite athletes, only four of them reported the same setback. That's a big difference. And there are other studies to back it up as well. Nico Van Piren's extensive 15-year study of top-performing professional footballers found that at a junior level, academy footballers who went to reach the highest super elite level had home lives that involved more than three times the divorce rate of peers who had failed to reach the top. Trauma in formative years seems to affect people. That said, these super elite athletes weren't exactly living happy lives. Lou Hardy, the researcher behind the paper, said they tended to be very difficult characters. Super elite athletes are amazing, but they aren't necessarily the most well-adjusted happy people. If they were, they wouldn't do what they do. Reese, his counterpart, said, I'm not saying world-class athletes have a mental disorder, but the point is they may be different to other people, and this drive could be the key. And it's not just the researchers who identified this. The super elite athletes themselves felt the same way. The super elite athletes interviewed in the Great British Medalist Report described themselves as ruthless or selfish. In contrast, only two of the elite competitors used those terms about themselves. 
And think about your friends. Who else describes themselves as ruthless and selfish? This is clearly a very unique type of person. So trauma seems to be a defining trait that links the best of the best in sport. But is trauma really a good thing overall? I asked Bruce. Yeah, well, well, firstly, I think the evidence we've got is that trauma is devastating for, for individuals. So there was some work done in the... It's really only come to popularity in the last couple of years, last two or three years. But the work, the, the foundational work for it was done 15 years ago by a couple of people, Robert Ander and Vince Felitti, um, who are doctors, physicians in the US uh, healthcare system. And they, they stumbled upon what they called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Index. And that is, they, firstly, they observed, they were working separately, but one of them observed, uh, Robert Ander observed, that a lot of patients who were coming to him, he worked at Veterans, um, uh, what do they call it? Veterans uh, Affairs? I, I can't remember what the, the medical system of the, uh, the US military is. But he worked there and he noticed that he was treating a lot more cases of lung cancer and alcoholism than he, he did typically in his normal practice. And so as a result of that, it was like, okay, these, seem, these people seem to smoke more and drink more. And he, he questioned whether, I wonder if there's a degree of self-medication. They've experienced such trauma that they are sort of medicating themselves to cope with it. Adjacent to that, uh, Vince Felitti was running a weight loss centre. And he thought, I think you can see a twinkle in his eye. I think he thought, I'm going to win some awards for this. I'm going to win some accolades for this. Because he'd learned how to get patients who were £300 down to a normal healthy weight, you know, from 25 stone to 20 stone, 20 stone to, to 10 stone, like helping get people back to a normal weight. And he, but the, he found there was like this remarkable level of recidivism that people would lose all the weight and then he wouldn't see them for three months and they were back and they were four stone heavier. It's like, what's happening? What's going on? What on earth's going on? I thought we'd dealt with this. Anyway, he started asking this sort of quite rigorous question that I think most people in the medical profession, flinch from asking these personal questions. So the personal questions he was asking were, what age were you when you became sexually active? Talk me through. Anyway, he um, he ended up accidentally asking, uh, getting a combination of these things wrong. And, uh, and a woman who maybe had been having a degree of self-concealment uh, revealed to him that she'd... Um, her first sexual encounters were when she was four years old and she was molested by her grandfather. Now, within a week, he'd had someone else with a similar experience tell him almost exactly the same. And he started screening his patients whether they'd experienced sexual abuse. And he found that 55% of these grossly obese people had experienced sexual abuse. So then the two of them created this index, which is called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Index. And it's a 10 questions. Uh, were you ever, before the age of 18, were you regularly humiliated by your parents? Were you physically uh, abused by your parents? Were you sexually abused by your parents? Were you ever, were, were your needs not met? Did you have a parent who went, or someone in the house who went to jail? Did you live with someone who had an addiction? There, there's 10 of these questions. And you, for each of the questions, you say yes or no. You give yourself one point or no points. And at the end of it, that gives you, it's quite a neat device because it gives you a score that doesn't reveal what your components are. My score, my A score is four, for example. It doesn't, but by me telling you my A score, you can't really tell which of those things I'm saying yes or no to. 
Just pausing briefly here to share a little bit more about ACE, the Adverse Childhood Experience Score. It encompasses all forms of childhood trauma, including physical and emotional abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction. The score goes up to 10, so the higher the score, the more trauma you've experienced. Anyway, back to Bruce. What you find is, so this is a pretty... It's, it's, a, it's a pretty rudimentary measure of the extent of childhood trauma that someone's had. But what you find is that the impact of it is astonishing. So if you've got an ACE score of four, like I've got, your chance of getting cancer, it's doubles, doubles. In fact, your chance of getting heart disease doubles. The, uh, it's got a correlation. It's got a, it's got a correlation with seven out of the 10 top causes of death, including suicide. Um, it's got a very strong, uh, dose relation, dose, um, dose. What do you call it? Dose effects relationship with alcoholism and substance dependency. Um, the if you've got an A score of six, your chance, your life expectancy is twenty years lower. If you've got an A score of four, you're thirty three times more likely to have educational problems at school. So it has these remarkable knock-on effects. And actually, you start observing, you start thinking, oh, wow, like, number one, trauma is massively injurious for our well-being. But secondly, we're starting to see, I, I guess, a fingerprint of trauma. We're starting to see really how bad it is. Now, when you go back there and compare it to the elite athletes, what you find is that the elite athletes are effectively experiencing trauma. Some of the evidence suggests that the health impact on them remains so that they're not they're not protecting themselves for it, but they are trying to resurrect a sense of self that most people experience trauma as um, shame. So even, even if, you know, one of the things in trauma, which you wouldn't think it's that bad, is whether your parents got divorced. Um, but parental divorce has a very high relationship very strong relationship with childhood obesity for example so you know some of these things might seem less significant than others the humiliation one you know your parents humiliating you doesn't seem as bad as sexual abuse but what you find is that the vast majority of people in jail have um have very strong very visceral feelings that they have been humiliated and so they've attempted to either protect their sense of self or they've responded in certain ways so these things i think firstly gives a real pointer for the way that trauma has an impact on an individual and secondly just gives us an, an opportunity to try to to work out the effects and and to try and diagnose how we could respond against it i think i think there are a few key takeaways here first is sort of obvious trauma isn't good it might lead a very small subset of people to become super elite athletes, but for most people, it ruins lives, even trauma at a very young age. A child with an ACE score of four or more is 33 times more likely to have behavioural problems in school than one with a lower or neutral score, and they are also three times as likely to be taking medication for ADHD. It's awful. As, as Bruce says, an ACE score of four, which is considered relatively low, doubles your chance of getting cancer. Trauma isn't good. Another takeaway for me is that the situation an individual might be in should never be taken at face value. There's a tendency in our society to blame individuals for the situation they're in. Drug dealers need to kick the habit, prisoners need to learn from their mistakes, chain smokers need to quit, and heavy drinkers need to go sober. As always, this is easier said than done. In many cases, the individuals in these situations are dealing with childhood trauma that most of us can't empathise with. We haven't lived through their experience, so can't judge them for their circumstance. 
It's also not their fault. All the evidence shows that a high ACE score will weigh the odds against you. But despite all of this, is there some amount of trauma that is good for us? Perhaps a small dosage that pushes us to achieve without debilitating our lives. In other words, is there a Goldilocks zone for trauma? I asked Bruce just after this quick 60-second break. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Okay, back to the show where I asked Bruce if there is a Goldilocks zone for trauma. Yeah, so, so you know, it's exactly the right phrase for it. The, the, in some of the research, there is a suggestion that there is a Goldilocks zone, that having no adversity is probably a better word to use. Um, having no adversity does seem to lead to lower, a, a very small start edge. Having no adversity at all does lead to slightly less life satisfaction less worse outcomes um but there is a critical zone now authors like jonathan Haidt, anyone who's uh, read jonathan Haidt's actually very interesting book the coddling of the american mind which is about teenagers and and the sort of um the the way that uh, young people are developing in the u.s he believes that we're in a zone where there's too much coddling where there's not enough adversity you know helicopter parenting is meaning that young people aren't necessarily experiencing the challenges and the things that they need to overcome you know i'm sort of um I'm a bit ambivalent on his take on it. I think it's it's a degree sensationalized. But the there does seem to be a Goldilocks zone. But for the most part, I think there, there seems to be good evidence that, you know, any degree of trauma certainly is not necessarily helpful for an individual. Now, look, you know, it's worth saying when you look at these lists, parents divorcing, most of us would go, look, you know, parents divorcing is possibly a fact of life rather than necessarily a trauma. But I think just understanding how these things have a bearing on an individual at least enables you to make accommodations for them. It makes you enables you to think about, okay, how might this affect a young person's upbringing? So, you know, I I think having an awareness awareness of these things is the critical first step. Perhaps this makes sense. It's sort of anchoring on a lifetime scale. If you live a perfectly easy life, you'll lack a reference point to realise how lucky you are. You might not appreciate your position as much as someone who has experienced hardship. The World Happiness Report sort of reflects this. The top five countries based on GDP per capita are Luxembourg, Ireland, Singapore, UAE and Kuwait. 
Individuals in these countries, on average, have the highest GDP in the world. They should be, on average, the wealthiest people. You might expect them, therefore, to be the happiest, but they're not. None of these countries rank in the top 10 for happiness. While, on the other hand, countries like Costa Rica, who sit outside the top 50 on GDP per capita, Costa Rica is ranked in the top 10 happiest countries in the world. Having an easy life doesn't always equal happiness. Lottery winners face a similar dilemma. You might expect that winning a lottery would solve all your problems and make you the happiest person in the world. Well, it solves your problems, but it definitely doesn't make you very happy. A team of Swedish researchers conducted one of the largest studies to date on the long-term effects of big lottery wins on psychological well-being. The study found little evidence that winning a large amount of money in the lottery had any significant impact on winners' happiness. They also found that winning big in the lottery does not substantially improve a person's current mental health. Winning the lottery could solve your problems, but without any problems, you'll struggle to reach happiness. You'll be stuck in a lull of mediocrity. This is consistent with a study by Daniel Cardamon that showed that beyond a £75,000 a year or £50,000 a year threshold, any increase in yearly wealth doesn't correspond with an increase in happiness or mental health. Happiness doesn't come from wealth, success or winning the lottery. The world's best athletes don't train for 10,000 hours. They've experienced trauma that drives them further than others are willing to go. And that same trauma can be completely debilitating for others, dramatically derailing lives in a number of ways. All right, we've covered a lot today, um, and Bruce will be back in the next podcast on a slightly lighter topic as well. It's a cracker. It takes a look at grit and growth mindset and analyzes whether these concepts are, are brilliant or if they're bullshit. To make sure you don't miss that, go and sign up to my newsletter. I'll send you an email as soon as that show goes live. Just click the link in the show notes to sign up. And if you're looking for something to listen to right now, go and listen to the previous episode of Nudge that Bruce was a guest on. It's episode 21, and in it, Bruce shares the science behind productivity. Listen and learn the optimum amount of hours to work per week, the science behind taking a lunch break, and the difference between a productive and unproductive office. I've dropped a link to that episode in the show notes. Bruce's book, Fortitude, is really worth picking up. We've only scratched the surface of some of the concepts, theories, and studies in his book, and he shares much more about the science of resilience and why soldiers can't bear to kill and how friends make challenges easier in the book. It's a goldmine of advice, and I can't even start to mention it all, so go and pick up a copy. I've dropped a link to the book in the show notes. Anyway, make sure to come back and listen next week. Bruce is back and will share why your growth mindset training might be a load of rubbish. Thanks for listening.